This program is brought to you with support from the U.S. EPA. We're here to present the EFC Network Podcast. The Environmental Finance Center Network is a partnership of 12 centers serving 10 EPA regions. The EFCN provides training and technical assistance to small water and wastewater systems. This podcast series has been designed to help system personnel improve technical, managerial, and financial capacity of the utilities and communities they serve. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Joni Palmer. I'm a project director at the Southwest Environmental Finance Center at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Welcome to the first of three podcast episodes about green infrastructure. And this is all from the Environmental Finance Center Network. Green infrastructure is not a new or recently minted concept in practice. And though it is commonly associated with urban areas, it is also an important part of rural landscapes and small water systems. Today, I'm going to talk with Susanna Drake, founding principal of D-Land Studio in Brooklyn, New York. We are gonna talk about the case for rural and small scale green infrastructure. I've known Susanna since our time at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, where she received her master's in both architecture and landscape architecture. She founded D-Land Studio in 2005 and recently merged with her firm with Sasaki Associates. What I find particularly compelling about your career is how this research has led to you being an industry advisor. For example, working with the Babbitt Center for Land and Water, working on policy development with the New York City Department of Environmental Protection, teaching at a variety of institutions, including where you're currently engaged, the Cooper Union School of Architecture in New York, where you are developing courses to educate a new generation of ecologically minded planners and designers. And of course, your design work. Susanna is joining us from her home in Colorado, so we're both in the same time zone. Um, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you, Joni. It's really exciting to be here. And, uh, and I think this is a really important area of, of research that really hasn't been um, publicized very much. You know, and, and so, we're gonna talk about green infrastructure. And so why don't we start by defining this term? I mean, we've heard a lot, there's a lot of terminology. So how do you define green infrastructure? And is this the term that you use in your practice that you find most productive? You know, it's, it's funny, the public doesn't necessarily understand the term of green infrastructure. Um, and it, it's a little bit, um, I mean, it's a little bit technical, it's kind of, Part of the reason that uh, we we come up with terms like the sponge park um, for work in the Gowanus is that I didn't really want to go into people's backyards or people's streetscapes and say I'm putting bioswales in your front yard because it seemed so clinical and it seemed so unfortunately you know there's sort of I think a resistance to these technical terms but but. I think one of the things that is important in the term of green infrastructure is that we're looking at something that is a network, right? And it's a network that can help the environment work better and help cities work better, help make healthier places. And to the extent that we can incorporate green principles, and that's more than just, you know, things that are physically green, you know, it may involve you know, aspects of, of, of how we're managing water or how we're cleaning the environment, you know, to the extent that we can incorporate a 
euphemistic idea of green, um, then I think we'll have healthier cities and healthier regions. Mm -hmm. So, so is that, um, yeah, I think you bring up a really good point about this, you know, we have this term that we use in the field, right, uh, or in a variety of fields from the water sector to design and planning, etc. Um, when you talk with clients, when you talk with neighborhoods or neighborhood members, community members, do you use the term green infrastructure? I do, and I usually have, when I talk about green infrastructure, I usually have to explain it. And I think um, there's a strong association between green infrastructure and um, stormwater management. But when you start looking at rural places, like where I grew up in Vermont, you know, if, if you're talking about green infrastructure, it may have broader implications. Um, and so I, I use it, but then I, I often find that I'm trying to find examples of how it applies to um, a particular sort of case study in a place. Mm -hmm. um, and that those case studies um, or those examples uh, vary based on the level of, of development or the level of urbanity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, well, now that you've mentioned that you grew up in rural Vermont, mm -hmm. um, so uh, let's use this as a, uh, to talk, of, just to refer a few minutes, I'm always curious about what leads people to do the work that they end up doing at the, you know, at the high point of their career, which I'm, I'm thinking that you're at that, that particularly amazing place. Um, okay, yeah. So, so what are some of the um, some of the influences that have taken your career in this this particular trajectory? Because you've been doing this for decades, right? Yeah. No, my family moved to Vermont when I was three. Um, so my father was a geophysicist, and he taught at Columbia. That's where he got his PhD. Um, and he, he moved the family up to Vermont in the late 60s. So all of my formative experiences were in, for the first 20 years of my life, were, were in that very, um, very rural place. And uh, we were pretty far from town. So I spent a lot of time out observing natural systems, um, you know, playing with with streams in front of the house. We had a pond and a stream. And so, you know, I'd like start moving rocks around and and um, and looking at the management of water. And and I remember just exploring the, the whole area. But when I went to Dartmouth, I was asked in my student essay to talk about the problem that I, or the, the greatest problem that I saw um, in the world or facing society. And I said loss of our natural lands hmm. and and it's kind of funny in retrospect to think about that because i didn't really have the intention of becoming a landscape architect or really even know what the profession was when i applied to college <laughs> but now i think oh you know that's what i'm hoping to do and that's what i'm trying to do through through my work through my practice well and you now spend a lot of time in the rocky mountains mm -hmm. And, and so I always see in your Instagram feed is, are, are some of the patterns that you're looking at and some of the, the, the unique happenings that are helping you to better understand that environment. So I find that really interesting that you talk about your rural Vermont childhood and then seeing your Instagram page of 
that kind of physical manifestation of those of your doing kind of similar things in a different uh, landscape. It is interesting seeing the patterns of light in the landscape here and just um, the it's just a it's a very different place from where I grew up and then also a very different place from where I spent the last 25 years, which is New York City. So, so I've had these, these kind of wonderful chapters in my life that have all um, been new opportunities for study and new opportunities for uh, thinking about how to sort of accentuate what is wonderful about those different places and what needs to be changed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, and you, you just said that you spent two decades in New York City. And so as I noted earlier, uh, when I was uh, introducing you that your work is predominantly in or has been in urban areas. Um, in this podcast series, the Environmental Finance Network is focusing on small water systems. Mm -hmm. and, and we use the EPA's uh, definition of small, uh, meaning water systems that serve fewer than 10,000 customers. So most of your experience is in urban design and urban landscape architecture. How do you think these concepts apply to small systems and rural areas? It's funny when you think about um, a system serving 10,000 people, that could be a street in New York, yeah. <laughs> like the Kiwanis Canal, like the, the pilot project that we did for a street end, that's probably serving 10,000, well, not even 10,000 people in, in that very small microcosm of, of Brooklyn. But I think one of the critical things to understand is that all of these water systems are interconnected and that we need to be thinking about a broader idea about hydrology. And we need to be thinking about how, you know, the, the impact that we have in Norwich, Vermont on the Ampampanusik River, which drains into the Connecticut River, which then drains down into Long Island Sound, you know, all of those systems are, are are connected and have a relationship to one another. And so um, we need to kind of nest our work so that we can create some kind of stronger bond between those places and those systems. Mm -hmm. So that, that network again, and, and kind of, you know, you know, that is foundational to what green infrastructure is. It isn't just about individual moments. Um, it gets me thinking about, you know, thinking like a watershed. Right. Well, and in fact, um, even when we were doing this, the sponge park, you know, it's this pilot project, it's little, but we were thinking about the potential for creating a, a new piece of green infrastructure. So a new prototype of something that could be replicated at scale that could then start to impact the watershed. So another example of something that we've done that I think applies to both rural and um, uh, more urban environments is this thing, this um, system we call holds. And I don't know, as you're driving around the, the city or driving around the countryside, you see these downspouts, these gutter, you know, these, these drains that come off of the raised highways. Mm -hmm. And they oftentimes just go out onto pavement and, and you know, you don't know where the water's going. And when that water ends up going out onto the pavement or it, it has a lot of pollutants in it, or it often has pollutants in it, 
that impact the watershed so or impact the local waterways. So we designed a system and we built a few different prototypes, um, some in Long Island, some um, actually some in Queens, um, and then one up in the Bronx. But, but then we looked at the potential for implementation of that system on elevated highways all around Long Island Sound. So mm -hmm. I can't say that's really rural, but, but certainly not as urban as New York City. But when you think about the potential for that idea to be used on all highways so that we're capturing that water that's coming off the highways and cleaning it before it can then be released into waterways or, or it can precipitate into the water table, you know, th that's, that's hugely powerful. So, and I think that's one of the tenets of, of green infrastructure that really needs to be emphasized that we can look at smaller prototypes that can work in lots of different situations from urban to rural um, that when replicated at scale can have a, a huge impact. And I think that's one of the things, one of the reasons I've applied for so many grants is to explore that idea because uh, public agencies of no fault of their own don't have a lot of incentive to innovate in this, in this way. And so I've used grants in order to test these ideas so that it, it almost, it, it alleviates the responsibility or alleviates the, the potential for um, blame um, for public agencies for something that they kind of need to be doing, but but the the public may want not want to devote their tax dollars to experimentation as much as they want to devote tax dollars to something that's already been proven. Mm -hmm. And and those you know the Guanas um, pilot project is you know is is something that you can then measure right, mm -hmm. and so you you know everybody wants to see metrics. But, but also at the same time, you can kind of chart it over time and see what actually happens. So that uh, if you do pursue that scalability, that, that you have some material to work with. It's funny, my husband is a math and science guy. And, and you know, if I put something in terms of math and science, then it's believable. Yeah, right? <laughs> right? yeah exactly. exactly. But science says, <laughs> even if, if scientists say something, it has more credibility. Yeah, no, but the pilot projects that, that you've done are, are pretty amazing and not all firms are invested in that. Let's, let's, let's take, let's shift into um, directly talking about rural communities and um, is green infrastructure something that you think that rural communities should be thinking about, seriously thinking about uh, for future resilience? Well, I think one of the fundamental, I think, yes, short answer, yes, absolutely. Um, because the watersheds of rural places are connected to urban places. And, but I'm not saying that rural places need to always be in service to the city, um, but some of the, those relationships, um, you know, if, if we don't and, uh, help to preserve our overall watershed, the implications are going to start to reach back to the rural places and negatively impact them as well. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think that that one of the I, I worked on the fourth regional plan um, for the regional plan association, and and that's one of the studies we we did. And I was focused on more on the waterfront, but one of the studies that was part of this plan was trying to come up with the mechanisms for thinking about the transact, the financial relationship between the, uh, the rural places and urban places. Um, and a lot of that had to do with water management. And the concern was that a lot of the rural places were getting developed um, and that that was negatively impacting the, the entire kind of regional ecology. Mm -hmm. um, that the, the farms and larger landscapes of the surrounding area were no longer as financially feasible as they had been in the past. And so there was transformation and a proliferation of sprawl. So this is perhaps a, a, a good segue um, into one of the concerns I have about rural places where development can happen without a lot of regulation about um, sort of the, the overall level of, of um, integration of green space or, or thoughtful um, integration of stormwater management beyond putting in a series of culverts mm -hmm. um, that uh, greenfield areas are, are getting plowed over rather than brownfield or, or areas that have already been developed um, being made more dense. It, it seems to me that there are a lot of opportunities um, in more rural places to um, develop in a more intelligent way and develop in a way that protects historic resources, um, that protects environmental resources, and that perhaps creates more walkable environments. And what you also get me thinking about are, are these intersecting infrastructures, mm -hmm. right? As when we talk about water infrastructure, we have to talk about, uh, and green infrastructure, uh, we have to talk about gray infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, but what does that, you know, what does that look like in rural areas. So I think about green infrastructure and, and uh, I think about bioswales and I think about you know, curb bump outs and you know, all of these things that are very urban. Also rain barrels, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what, would, what would be green infrastructure in a rural area? Well, you know, I think when, um, was it Hurricane Irene uh, hit the East Coast? Um, there, uh, we found that there were a lot of roads that were right next to the rivers. And so a lot of the roads ended up getting washed out and the roads were historically built next to the rivers because it was this kind of broader floodplain area that was flat. It was easy to build. And we saw the same thing in Boulder, right? We had, when we had the massive floods, was it 2016? I think you were still at Boulder yeah. then, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, the the um, the landscape, you know, or the development had gotten very close to the the area where the 
water used to run through the creeks and streams. So I think on a rural level, the one of the big, big issues to, to consider is the former hydrology of the area. So the paths of streams. Mm -hmm. So looking at, and I think the best way to, to see or to predict um, or even just understand the paths of former streams that run through, through rural places um, is to look at the soils and to look at the geophysics of the place and, and considering or consider that in those areas where streams and, and swamps and uh, you know, wetland areas used to exist, that's a place that you might wanna focus your, your green infrastructure projects and that those projects may even involve just having that space become park space mm -hmm. like just not building buildings or roads in those places mm -hmm. so it's a little bit less of a systematic idea but it it may be a kind of regional planning kind of uh, consideration or even a town planning consideration my sister is a town planner or town um, advisor to the town of Norwich now. Um, and so she's, she's facing a lot of these issues. The town has about, I don't know, now it probably has about three or 4,000 people. It used to be smaller. Um, but, but, you know, how the, or protecting um, floodplains or not having people build in floodplains is a really critical issue because some places people have already built in those floodplains. So how do you manage that situation? Um, looking at the percolation of the soil, you know, and where you can have septic, uh, those, those issues have a, a huge um, impact on small towns. Um, so uh, there, I think there are, there, there's just kind of a, a different way of, of uh, sort of thinking about the, the, the small town versus the big town. It's almost easier to think about big cities because you can, you know, it's architectural. Right. And, and I think it's harder to understand landscapes than it is to understand an architectural interventions for most people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, and you bring up that, you know, in, instead of it just being these individual insertions that you're thinking about land, landscape scale inventory mm -hmm. uh, you know, to a certain degree of, of really understanding the past and the present. And when we talk about resiliency, what is the future? If we, you know, carry on with this business as usual, what is going to happen to um, our access? And we think about this in New Mexico, um, right. especially right now with the fires, um, to clean drinking water. Right, right. Well, and I think um, the, you know, one of the issues we have out here, you know, in New Mexico and in in Colorado, is that the the rain will come, but the rain comes really hard and really fast. So, how do you manage that? And in, in, in a lot of these arid places or semi-arid places, the, the, the strategy is to make it go away as quickly as possible, to convey it somewhere else. And I think my, my feeling is that we wanna make it absorb as much as we can instead of having it go away. Right. So that may involve using more uh, greater use of permeable pavers um, as a possibility, but then I think also having broader absorptive landscapes. 
Mm -hmm. you know, more spongy landscapes. This sounds like a, a pilot project in rural yes. infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> um, Next, right? <laughs> see what you can do with those those folks at Sasaki. Right, right. Um, well, yeah, and actually, we we did some work in um, in Manoa in Hawaii, um, and it was in a watershed that that is fascinating because it leads from uh, up in the mountains. You get 120 inches of water a year. And then down by the beach, you get about 20 inches of water a year. So you go from tropical down to arid almost. Um, and, uh, and the Army Corps of Engineers, their, their idea for how to manage water in a, a, an area up the hill on the University of Manoa campus, which is almost kind of rural seeming, yeah. um, was to channelize this water and have it go kind of more quickly down the hill or down the mountain. But the problem is when you have the water go more quickly, then it it ends up building up a lot of momentum and and having more disastrous implications downstream. Right. And the nice thing about Manoa as an example is just that you have the kind of rural to urban microcosm in a very small area. Yeah. So that it doesn't seem quite as um, as as uh, separate as say, you know, Norwich, Vermont to New York City, right. so, or, you know, the Rocky Mountains to Denver, even so. Well, you know, we're, what you were just saying about Manoa and being over a very short distance and, and it might be easier to explain to people who are living along that transect, right, mm -hmm. um, about what green infrastructure is between the rural and the urban. But so how do you, um, how do you introduce people to this concept of green infrastructure to a skeptical audience? And then also I'm thinking about a rural audience that might think green infrastructure is in cities. It's about, you yes, know. Suspect. Yeah. Those yeah. urban people. Yeah, yeah. I remember <laughs> in Vermont, the people from New York were called flatlanders. It's just like, <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you didn't trust those urban people. Um, mm -hmm. and, and even the word urban, I think is, is something that I don't use when I'm talking to people in small towns. Um, mm -hmm. When you, uh, you know, talk about urbanism, it's just like, oh, that's not, that's, you don't move to a rural place to create an urban center. Um, right. And I think a lot of designers use the term walkable um, in that, you know, in that context because you know walkable small towns are great, um, but you don't want to talk about it being urban. Um, so uh, I think um, I think somehow it ideally, if it could become part of our educational system where we understand the benefits of of like having street trees on your main street, mm -hmm. and that that if your street tree has a big um, hit or have, if your street tree has enough soil, it will get big and it'll, it'll give you the shade that you want. Um, and I think that's something that's kind of universal. People love trees and trees provide so much benefit, but trees, even in rural places, aren't gonna survive if they're not, um, if they don't have the right microclimates. So if road salts are being spread on, on the roads and they're getting into the tree pits, they're gonna kill the trees. 
you know, having people understand those kind of simple issues, but then I think more importantly is probably having having people understand the the, the benefits that the tree, those trees are providing. Uh, I think that's really uh, key. So those those kind of multiple co-benefits when we talk about green infrastructure, uh, as you know, it also relates to air quality, not just water quality. It, it relates to a lot of, there's a lot of co-benefits to that. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I just, I'm, I'm really curious as to, you know, what are, what have been the barriers? I mean, I, I, I was looking at the literature and there's very little conversation about rural green infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are the, you know, why is that not part of the conversation? Um, I mean, I know this, that's kind of a big question, but. Well, no, I think it has to do with the, the perceived cost benefit analysis um, for politicians mm -hmm. and for, you know, people who are potentially funding these, these rural um, projects that when you get to a rural place, you may want to be thinking more regionally in terms of allocation of assets. But I think a lot of it does come down to, you know, the, the investments that are made in, in rural places need to have a demonstrable benefit to the people that live there. And it may not be as clear um, to to local elected officials or even local residents, um, what those benefits are. A lot of the work that's happening in urban places, I think is happening in part because of consent decrees from the federal government, you know, from the EPA um, for cities to clean up their waterways. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to the extent that some of that pressure or some of the incentive for green infrastructure can come from above or come from regulation, then we might see more happening. And also I think to the extent that we can um, have green infrastructure jobs start to come mm -hmm. in rural places, that could be tremendously beneficial. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, making those, making those connections that, you know, the interdependencies, mm -hmm. right, uh, between the urban and the rural, but also that very place specific, mm -hmm. right, in terms of what, what those, what those interventions are. And so, um, you know, it's, it is, it, it is a matter of, you know, um, the bottom line being, you know, for, especially right now in this political environment, right, is the, you know, how much is it going to cost and who is it going to benefit? And so that education, you were saying earlier about, um, you know, what we teach in our schools when we, at university level, um, landscape architecture, architecture and planning, that's something that you do in your, the coursework that you've developed mm -hmm. um, are teaching these kinds of classes. Uh, have you found that that is something that uh, most departments are really open to is having that kind of, uh, green infrastructure in the curriculum? Well, I've taught mostly in uh, interdisciplinary design programs. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I, I think I've been teaching at a time when, you know, green infrastructure is just kind of the accepted way to go. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that I've also been teaching at a time when green infrastructure is seen as necessary 
for protecting lots of different environments from the, the impacts of climate change. Um, so in, including probably to the greatest degree or, or I've studied to the greatest degree, the impact of, of water and that would be extreme storms and how that impacts coastal places, but also how it impacts um, places that might flood uh, where the rivers might flood, the streams might flood. Um, but I think it's also extending to, um, to issues of, of fire and heat island effect now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the design schools, it, I feel like it's just what everyone is, is talking about or working on, it's the problem that pe people are working on. What I'd like to see is um, that teaching um, trickle down into the elementary schools, mm. right? Yeah. And because I think that's really critical. If, you know, there were a lot of environment, environmental messages that came out when you and I were small that I think got ingrained um, in us and led us to become the environmental zealots that we are. <laughs> um, and I, I think that needs to continue, but I think now there's an opportunity to inform kids or teachers about some of the strategies that can be used. The, the advantage uh, or I think an opportunity that could come out of probably this a webinar like this is to develop curriculum that works um, in different ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Because we're, we're talking about generalities in part because what you do in Norwich, Vermont is going to be very different than what you do in uh, Leadville. Colorado, or in, I don't know, just name your small town in the United States. So, so it's, um, you know, to the extent that, that the strategies can start to be um, to integrated at a local level, at a, even at a microclimate level, that would be really useful. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right in, in terms of, you know, that um, education from K through 12 all the way, you know, um, to postdoc. Right of uh, but getting that that education in rural communities so that that young people are thinking about the future, the resiliency, the potential resiliency of their water systems, um, and and from a very early age. And I think thinking about what they can do, because mm -hmm. I get I, I do get a lot of people reaching out to me who who don't know what they can do to help, and mm -hmm. they want to somehow be engaged with environmental uh, or improvement of the environment or protection of the environment. And they, they haven't figured out how to align their particular skill sets with you know, the, the fight or the, you know, the, the, the development of, of policy or strategy or, or design impl implementation ideas. So I think, um, if the knowledge is introduced earlier, then I think that'll help people um, focus their efforts younger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that hopefully they're going to influence those places mm -hmm. um, where they're growing up. And I'm planning to retire in my hometown, rural upstate New York. Um, what will I bring with me back home? And, and thinking about that for these, these young people that may move away, but uh, will have those ties. And, and for a lot of people, those rural ties are, 
are, you know, that rural upbringing is what really made them who they are. Like mm -hmm. you've been talking about your, your background, um, what they can bring back to their communities. So um, I guess we'll, um, we're kind of running out of time and I think we've covered all the, the topics that, that I have here on my, my list of things to discuss. Um, so yeah, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. Right from policy to education to from urban to rural, um, are there any anything last words that you want to give well, to the audience? Yeah, maybe maybe a an example um, would be helpful in terms of of um, I don't know just bringing this all together. So you mentioned that we we did this work on the tidal basin lab, so the mall in Washington, um, it has a lot of flooding issues and the tidal basin um, is an area that was developed to manage the flows of the Potomac River. And it's the area where the beautiful cherry blossom festival happens every year. It's an incredible uh, bloom um, uh, and this with uh, the a gift from the Japanese government uh, that was made um, in the early 20th century. And, and we were brought in to be part of this lab project to study the tidal basins and the flooding and what should happen to that area. But we were asked to look at a really small area. We were just looking at the physical tidal basin. And I thought that's not the way to think about uh, a, an inf a water infrastructure project, and it's not—it's not going to give us a solution that is sustainable in the long term. And so we did an analysis of the entire watershed, and what we discovered was that the watershed around Washington D.C., the Potomac River watershed, um, that—that that I think 15, was fifteen percent, so the 12, 12 or fifteen percent of that watershed had been paved since 1950. So suburban development mm. basically paved so much more of the watershed that all that water was now flowing down the Potomac into Washington, DC. <laughs> That's a like cliff note version. Um, but but the, the lesson here is that if we can think about ways to make the upstate landscape more permeable or to manage the water at the rural scale, mm -hmm. we can help protect, protect some of our urban resources. And in this case, our national resources. It's not that we're protecting a city, we're protecting our government, right? We're protecting the mall, we're protecting the Smithsonian, we're protecting our, our collective history as American citizens. And so, you know, that I think is, a, is an example of, of how important it is for us to think about our entire hydrologic infrastructure um, and how we, the watershed thinking has to be the way of the future. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So. Well, I guess um, unless there's anything else, um, thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me, with us, our audience, and um, good luck with the merger with Sasaki. And I, I hope thank you, you get to continue to do the amazing work that you're doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm very excited about the, the future. 
Thank you for listening to this episode about rural and small scale green infrastructure. You can learn more about Susanna's work at dlandstudio.com, which is also now it's going to be uh, sasaki.com. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. All right. So you can follow. If you log into dland.com, it'll now get, get directed to Sasaki. So. Fantastic. Um, you can also learn more about green infrastructure at the Environmental Finance Center network site, efcnnetwork.org, and you can search the media library for materials. The next two episodes on green infrastructure will be released over the summer and fall of this year. You can follow us, the Southwest Environmental Finance Center and the Environmental Finance Center network on social media. You'll find us on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. This podcast and all EFCN podcasts will be available on YouTube, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Apple, and Audible. Thank you, and I hope you can join us for another episode. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning into this episode of the EFC Network Podcast, brought to you with support from the U.S. EPA. Be sure to stay tuned for future EFC Network podcast episodes. 